0: Uh, which is great, and as has been our habit so far, and as our habit shall continue, we'll take next week um, to just reflect uh, on the book of Leviticus with a night of worship and readings, prayer and devotion. Uh, in fact, if you would like to give us a hand with that, if you would like to um, read a passage or something like that, please let Matt know, and we'll be putting that together this week so that will be next week, which is what, the 17th? The 17th will be a worship night. And then although we would normally jump right back into numbers on the 24th, we're actually going to take a pause. Um, our church here, Calvary the Hill, on Sunday mornings um, is going to be doing a seven-week series called Sex and Gender in the Image of God. Um, and because our morning service is followed directly by another church's morning service, we don't have the time to do a QA, to provide room for questions and answers. Um, and so we're actually going to repeat the sermon in the evening and leave room for that question and answer. The sermon series will be for seven weeks, and the format will be very similar to what we've been doing in the evenings already. And so all the worship will be up front. Um, I'll share the same sermon from Sunday morning, and then we'll have an open time for question and answer. Of course, you and anyone else you'd like to bring are welcome to come. Um, If that's not what you're here for, that's, of course, totally okay. And we will return to our Through the Bible study November 12th. So seven weeks of this other series, and then November 12th, we'll jump back into the Book of Numbers. Um, Be checking our website uh, if you need that information again. We'll make sure that it's posted there. But I would encourage you to join us for, um, for this series that starts on the 24th um, I've been working on it for a long time, and um, and I just feel like these things are are so important. And generally, the way that God leads me as a person is through irritation and frustration. And I just was irritated that, um, that things weren't better, in, specifically in terms of resources uh, and thinking and theology of sex and gender. I was just very unimpressed by the things that I was encountering. Um, and so I've read stacks upon stacks of books over the last few years. Um, I'm teaching a class for a small Bible college on the same topic, um, and the series will be kind of built on that foundation. Um, But I would encourage you to come for that. So next week we'll have a worship night, and then starting on the 24th for seven weeks we'll do that series, and then on the 12th of November we'll get into Numbers, and Lord willing we'll finish Numbers as well this year. Um, So that's all of that. We're going to finish the book of Leviticus tonight. And we're going to pick up in chapter twenty five. We've mentioned on multiple occasions that this idea of the Sabbath is not merely a Saturday thing or a Sunday thing. Uh, It's not merely just about every seventh day taking a rest. The principle is bigger than that. And so we saw, for example, in Leviticus 23, that the festivals of Israel's year, not only were there seven of them, but in the seventh month was three of them, including the most important one, the Day of Atonement. And so the number seven kind of runs through everything God's doing, and chapter 25 tonight builds on that principle, both with the Sabbath year, as well as the Sabbath of Sabbaths, the celebration of Jubilee. And so we pick up in verse one of chapter 25. The Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I will give you, the land shall keep a Sabbath, to the Lord. Now, notice the way that that's phrased. Many of the laws in the book of Leviticus look forward to the inheritance of the land. Um, some of the festivals we looked at, they weren't to start celebrating until they entered into the land. There was going to be no harvest, so no harvest festivals. In the same way here, it says that when they come into the land, uh, the land itself is to have, have a Sabbath. Now, we've talked a lot uh, in our time in Leviticus about uh, the principles behind Sabbath. Uh, You may remember that the Sabbath law as given in the Ten Commandments differs in the book of Exodus and in the book of Deuteronomy. One of them roots the commandment in the creation narrative of the book of Genesis, that in six days God created the earth and he rested on the seventh, therefore you shall rest Uh, And then in the book of Deuteronomy, when it reiterates the Ten Commandments, it roots it in a different idea. It says, you shall honor the Sabbath and keep it holy, for you were slaves in Egypt, and I set you free from that. And so we've been talking about the principle of rest for people, but now we see that there's an environmental emphasis, um, that the land itself is to Sabbath, it's to be given rest, that the um, justice of Sabbath, the freedom of Sabbath applies not only to the people of Israel, not only to the strangers living in the midst, not only their servants and, uh, and slaves, uh, not only their animals, of which all we've covered so far, but the land itself is supposed to rest. Now, agriculturalists today would tell you that this is a pretty darn good idea, that if you continue to... Um, insert crops into land season after season without any form of rotation, you'll naturally decay the nutrient value of the soil. And so eventually you overwork overworked the soil. Um, but the principle here is is broader than that. In fact, let's continue in verse 3. For six years shall you sow your field, and for six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruits. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest on the land, a Sabbath to the Lord. You shall not sow your field or prune your vineyard. So notice a couple of things. This is clearly more than crop rotation, okay? So it's not you have your vineyard and it's on an opposite rotation of your grains and that's different than your olives. Uh, No, this is an entire year where agriculturally you do no labor. You stop working the land. Um, I was thinking about this this morning. Imagine, imagine that you're, in a, you're a foreigner living in the days of Israel, and you visit Israel during this time, where the normal seasons of agriculture are on full hiatus, and you just say, why, why are all you, all of your fields lying fallow? Why aren't you working the land that you have? And they'd say, well, that's because of the Sabbath. And just think of how profound uh, this would be in terms of uh, what life would be like. See, the way the Sabbath works in terms of days off, in terms of rest, is not just one-seventh of your life. If you take 52 Sabbaths a year and then you add to it the seven festivals that Israel celebrates, some of which are a week long, and then you add to it every seventh year and then, as we'll see, on the 50th year, an extra year. So every seventh seventh year, a two-year cycle. It's a tremendous amount of time away from work and one of the things that I think is very clear uh, in this concept of Sabbath is that our life is more than work. Whatever we can accomplish in the six days is meaningful. The Bible doesn't see work as a curse that was a consequence uh, of the fall, despite the fact that many other religions do. In fact, the ancient Near East creation myths all involve uh, basically hungry gods who needed men to work so that they could feed them, so that they wouldn't have to work. Okay? And so the burden of work is a curse on man. There are other religions that see it in the same way that uh, for like the Greeks, uh, the original state of mankind before everything went wrong, pre-Prometheus if you will, was a place of leisure and of rest and work is something we have to do because things are so awful. The Bible doesn't see it that way. It proclaims that when God created the heavens and the earth and made Adam and Eve and placed them in a garden, he gave them a job up front to rule over the earth, to be fruitful and multiply, and to watch, protect, and garden the garden. What happens in the curse is that what was enjoyable and fruitful work becomes toilless uh, and um, futile. And so now it's by the sweat of the brow. Now it's for dust you are, to dust you shall return. But we need work. It's built into who God has made us as human beings. It's where we draw meaning. But it's not all there is of meaning. It can't be our sole meaning. It can't be the focal point of meaning. Um, it's probably only pastors, missionaries, and uh, professors that take sabbaticals now. But that principle of taking an entire year off from your career, from your work, comes from this idea here. And can you just imagine what you would do with yourself for a year's time if it wasn't business meetings? If it wasn't, you know, getting dressed for the office every day, if it wasn't just putting food on the table, it's, it's a relatively unique vision. And so the whole nation was to take a year where they did not work the land. He continues here in verse 5, "'You shall not reap what grows of itself in your harvest.'" or gather the grapes of your undressed vine, it shall be a year of solemn rest for the land. The Sabbath of the land shall provide food for you, for yourself and for your male and your females, and slaves and for your hired servant and your sojourner who lives with you, and for your cattle and for the wild animals that are in your land. All its yield shall be for food. And so um, what is being said here, Uh, is that the stuff that grows naturally over the course of that year is open. But they're not to till the ground. They're not to work it. They're not to plant a new crop. Um, Clearly, taking a year off for work requires provision. Right? If anything, what God is saying to Israel here is, you're going to have to trust me, and it's going to be part of your regular life cycle. Every seventh year... We'll, we'll learn later that God promises in the sixth year to give them an abundant crop that will carry them through the seventh year, okay? But think of how this principle plays out in life. The land, that's what we're talking about here, that God is giving, this land of milk and honey, this land that he's promised will be fruitful and as we'll see in their obedience would be abundantly fruitful. The danger is that as they would work it, they would forget that it came from God. They would forget that the provision was God's, and so there's this constant and regular reminder that this is the case. It's built into their cycle. I think it's very possible that we all could grow in our ability to depend upon God's provision. And, and I'll be honest, the majority, primary way that God provides is through the strengths, talents, job opportunities that he's given us. But it's very easy to take those things, you know, the, the brain that you have that you didn't choose for yourself, that you didn't earn for yourself, the one that you were gifted with, um, the upbringing that you have that shaped your habits and skills and these types of things. It's very easy to start to feel like, I work hard for a living and so this is what I do and so I have my money and if I want to give it to God, I give it as a gift. And the Bible says, no, that's not really the best way to think about it. Whether money drops from the sky like rain or you get a paycheck signed over to your name, you have to recognize God ultimately and finally as provider. Israel gets a very practical object lesson in this in that every seventh year they have to lean on the provision of God. I'll remind you once again that in their setting of the ancient Near East, because you, be, you rely on agriculture so much in those days remember there's no grocery stores there's no shipping line from the other nations exporting goods to make sure that the world is fed right what you grow is what feeds you and your nation um because of that a primary aspect of most related uh most local religions was manipulating the gods to make sure and secure a good outcome of harvest and so um so there were rituals that were performed to appease the gods to bring rain, appease the gods to make things fruitful. We don't find any of that in, in Israel's law. As we saw with the festivals, we see them responding to God's provision with gratitude and thankfulness, bringing their first fruits and praising God for what he has done. And as we see here, we also see them going against the grain, no pun intended, Uh, of of this by every seventh year having to rely fully on God's provision. Verse eight, you shall count seven weeks or literally seven sevens of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the 10th day of the seventh month On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land and you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. And so we see here not just a seven year pattern, but every time they completed a full cycle of seven, seven years. The 50th year would be a special year known as the year of Jubilee and it would begin on the day of atonement and a trumpet would be blown on the day of atonement inaugurating this year and it says that it's going to be a year of liberty. It'll unpack that for us in just a second. Um, Verse 11, that 50th year shall be a Jubilee for you In it, you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from undressed vines, for it's a jubilee, it shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. And so here again, we see um, another year where they're not to work the land, but this one follows a seventh year, okay? And so every seven years, they take a year off. And then on the 49th and 50th year, they don't work the land. And so this is a two-year cycle. Every 50 years, twice a century where the land is not worked at all. In verse 13, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee and he shall sell to you according to the number of years for crops. Okay, so this this is profound. Here's... Here's what God is commanding here. He's saying that if you sell your farm property, in the course of this 50-year cycle, in the year of Jubilee, it returns to you. Remember that one of the promises that God gave Israel was not just that he would have many uh, descendants, but also that he would give those descendants a land. And so in the book of Numbers, we'll see they come to the land and they draw lots for the land. The land is their inheritance. And so the year of Jubilee is a way of protecting that inheritance by making sure that even by your poor choices or a bad season of crops or some form of disaster, that the land doesn't drift and accumulate into minor parties owning all of it. We live in Seattle right now, which because of the boom, is very quickly becoming primarily owned By landlords, right? We're becoming a renter city. And so a handful of people own most of the property. And we're relatively familiar with the downside of that that uh, when somebody owns everything and everybody owns very little, there's an imbalance of power, right? It's like a land monopoly, and so it can be manipulated uh, and abusive. Israel has a plan set in place by God to make sure that the inheritance stays with the family. That you pass the land onto your children and even a bad cycle or a bad decision can't spoil that inheritance. And so what it's explaining in the passage we're reading right now is that doesn't mean that they can't sell their land. Okay, Every culture has to figure out what to do about debt. What to do when things go sideways, right? It is as beautiful as it sounds that all debts would be forgiven. Practically, that's impossible, okay? Because, because exchange has to mean something. And so there must be a way uh, for somebody to fix a debt that they've accrued. If they were to take out a loan and then default on that loan, if everybody did that, the economy would collapse, But the way Israel goes about it is ingenious, and I want you to notice up front that it's not socialism. The idea here is not that nobody owns the land. The idea is that the land isn't permanently losable. In other words, everybody continues to hold on to the land that they have. Socialism would put all of the land into the power of probably a government and then distribute it to the all effectively. The problem with that is the government is made up of human beings. And so capitalism puts all of the property in the hands of the rich, and socialism puts it all in the hands of the powerful, and either way it has a tendency to to go sideways. If we had a modern view that was as close to this as possible, it's actually not really a modern view, um, but last century there was a view called distributivism. Isn't that a fun word? Distributivism. And G.K. Chesterton, interestingly enough, the Catholic scholar who wrote Orthodoxy and the Father Brown um, mystery series, uh, he was a huge proponent of this. He wanted to go to some degree back to the uh, system of the Middle Ages where uh, the land was worked uh, equally by people. But he drew many of those ideas from this concept. So what does that work out economically? If you're in debt and the only way you can get out of it is to sell your land, you always have the option to buy it back. And the closer you get to Jubilee, the cheaper the price. Does that make sense? So really, what you're doing is not selling the land, you're leasing it. And so they can work the land, they can get their crops during that time, but you can buy it back. And so every year they work it subtracts from that initial price that you sold it for. And so let's read again and you'll see um, what I'm talking about. Verse 13, in this year of Jubilee, each of you shall return to his property. And if you make a sale to your neighbor or buy from your neighbor, you shall not wrong one another. You shall pay your neighbor according to the number of years after the Jubilee, and he shall sell to you according to the number of years of crops. If the years are many, you shall increase the price. If the years are few, you shall reduce the price for it's the number of the crops that he's selling you. Okay, it's the use of land. It's a licensing agreement with the land. That's what's being sold here. Um, verse 16 uh, we just read verse 17 you shall not wrong one another but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord your God do you see how that principle is sandwiched between that statement you shall not wrong one another okay here's the recognition that people when they are dealing with poverty deserved or undeserved is or is irrelevant when people are dealing with poverty they are at risk of being taken advantage of And what God says to Israel here is it's wrong to take advantage. If the rich are getting richer on the backs of the poor, God sees that as problematic. He sees that as unjust. And so built into this is a way to make sure that this doesn't happen in Israel. In fact, it gets more profound than that. Notice how he says this at verse 17, You shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God for I am the Lord your God. He says that the way we treat other people's property, and I would say that this principle is easily updatable to our own times, even though it would look differently, should be with a recognition that God watches out for the poor. Okay. And so predatory loans have no fear of God in them. Okay. Um, Subprime mortgages have no fear of God in them. These people are acting as if they're at the top of the food chain so they can, be, they can take advantage of other people's disadvantage. And God says, not so with you, Israel. He continues here in verse 18. Therefore, you shall do my statutes and keep my rules and perform them. And then you will dwell in the land securely. The land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell in it securely. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year if we may not sow or gather in our crops? I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year. So that it will produce a crop sufficient for three years. When you sow in the eighth year, you will be eating some of the old crop, you shall eat the old until the ninth year when the crop arrives. And so here God promises to take care in the sixth year to give them enough to make it through this Sabbath year. In fact, he says he's going to give them enough so that even as they start the eighth year, there's enough to plant or to eat while they're planting, right? Because the eighth year they still have to grow that crop. So it's actually a year and a half worth of food that God promises to give in the six year, or two and a half years, if you want to add it all together. But just think of the risk here. Imagine you're a Jewish politician in the days of Israel and you're in year four or year five and you're looking ahead on the calendar. Imagine that the six year comes and you look at the crop and you're like, man, bumper crop. Right, can you see all of the dangers and the things that would interfere with this? Interestingly enough, we don't have any clear references to Israel actually keeping the seventh year policy and we have no even slightly unclear references to the year of Jubilee ever happening. In fact, when Israel is finally cast out of the land, the way that Jeremiah explains it is that it's going to be, um, it's going to be a Sabbath for the land of Israel because they haven't been doing this, okay? So for every year they should have given the land rest, now the land is going to rest because God's removed Israel from it entirely, okay? There are some references to possibly the year of Jubilee, in the intertestamental period. So if you read First and Second Maccabees, for example, it'll reference these things. Um, but nonetheless, this way is provided so, so that you can break out of a cycle of debt, so that systemic poverty can be dealt with. In fact, it goes further. Verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity for the land is mine for you are strangers and sojourners with me. Now notice two things there. First, God says, I'm only giving you a lease on the land as it is. This isn't your land. This isn't my land from one place to another. You know, this is God's land that he's given graciously to Israel. And so this principle is built on the back of that. And then second, notice he says, you are strangers and sojourners with me. Usually he says, you were strangers and sojourners. He says, be careful how you treat foreigners because you were a foreigner. Be careful how you treat sojourners because you were a sojourner. But here he says, in this land, you still are. You are sojourners here. Um, and then he continues in verse 24, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. So one of the things that requires for the system to work is that, that, um, that no take backs is not a thing right that if you sell the land because you're in a hard place if you give up the family farm that at any time you can come and buy it back okay at any time redemption is always possible is built into the plan verse 25 on top of that based on networks of people beginning at the closest level of your intermediate family, they're supposed to support one another to make sure these things don't happen. Notice verse 25. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his his brother has sold. So not only can you come back and redeem it, but it says here, if it's your own flesh and blood brother who's so poor that he had to sell his land and you have the money to buy it back, you should buy it back and give it to him this relationship of the goel the the kinsman redeemer this is the uh, relationship that plays out by the way in the book of ruth where it's not just land but also ruth that's bound up in this identity later on interestingly enough this is a term that god uses for himself he says for israel i will be their kinsman redeemer Um, but verse 26 if a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it. Let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man whom he sold it, then return to his property. But if he's not sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand by, of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee, it shall be released and he shall return to his property. And so at at worst outcome, if he maintains a posture of poverty and is never able to earn back enough to buy back the land, and remember that price decreases the closer the year of jubilee draws. But if he never gets there, it's still, in the fiftieth year, is returned to him. Verse twenty-nine: If a man sells a dwelling, uh, a dwelling house in a walled city, he may redeem it within the year of its sale. For a full year, he shall have the right of redemption. So now it's talking about a house within city walls. Okay. So whereas all the other ones imply land that you're farming. This is inside the city walls. Uh, It's like a condo here in Seattle. And it says for up to one year, the right of redemption still stands. If you have to sell it because you can't afford it, Any day you can knock on the door and say, okay, I'd like to buy it back from you, and they have to agree to that. Verse 30, if it is not redeemed within a full year, then the house in the walled city shall belong in perpetuity to the buyer throughout his generations. It shall not be released in the jubilee. So this law applies only to the rural houses, the ones that have land and farming. If you have a city dwelling and you sell it and you don't redeem it within the year, you can't... Gain it back. It's no longer part of your inheritance. The law doesn't apply there. And I think the obvious reason has to do with the fact that we're not just talking about housing. We're talking about livelihood, right? We're not just talking about a place where you sleep. We're talking about a land that you work for a living. And so the year of Jubilee is focused on that, on uh, sus- uh, sustaining yourself and not primo city property, okay? He continues uh, here in verse twenty or 31. But the houses of the villages that have no wall around them, because they have land, shall be classified with the fields of the land. They may be redeemed and shall be released in the Jubilee. As for the cities of the Levites, the Levites may redeem at any time the houses of the cities they possess. Okay, so second exception here. This one involves the Levites. Now, when we get into the book of Numbers, we'll see that the other 11 tribes, two of which are half-tribes, Manasseh and his brother Ephraim, Joseph's two sons. All of them give, are given a portion of the land. The Levites are not. And God's going to say, that's because I'm their inheritance. But he requires every tribe to give up some of their land so that Levites can dwell scattered throughout Israel. A total of 48 donated cities where the Levites dwell. Okay? And so this is relatively unique. The Levites uh, are scattered all over so that they can do their job But they don't have the same inheritance laws. And so, what we learn here about the Levites, um, verse 32 again, as for the city of the Levites, they may redeem at any time the houses of the cities they possess. And if one of the Levites exercises his right of redemption, then the house that was sold in the city possesses shall be released in the Jubilee. So, if you're a Levite and you live in the city, that is as close as you get to an inheritance. That's where you live. The Levites, as a tribe, were totally and completely supported by the other tribes of Israel through their tithes and offerings, through their sacrifices. They were devoted to the Lord and to the ministry, and so their city houses are an exception to the exception we just read. Uh, Verse 34, but the fields of the pasture lands belonging to their cities may not be sold, for that is their possession forever. Okay, and so they can't even sell the land that they work. Verse 35, if your brother becomes poor and cannot maintain himself with you, you shall support him as though he were a stranger and sojourner, and he shall live with you. Okay. Now, actually, I think that's a really striking statement. First off, it's comparative to what we just read. If your brother sells his land uh, and you have the means to buy it back, buy it back for him and give it back to him. Now it says, if he is poor and sells his land and you can't do that, take him in and take care of him. But I want you to notice the language it uses. It says, treat him like a stranger and a sojourner. Now in most cultures, that would be a worse condition. If your brothers really screwed up and lost the family inheritance and is a black sheep of the family and embarrassment because of his debt, Treat him like a stranger and sojourner. We would read that like, forget he even exists. He's no longer family. Kick him out of the club. But the point here is that they are to, to take care of him, to support him, to watch out for him. In fact, they tell, uh, Leviticus tells us how to do that. Verse 36, take no interest from him or profit, but fear your God that your brother may live beside you. And so you're supposed to give him a loan, not a handout. But that loan is to be without interest. In fact, the Jews are required in many places in the Old Testament law never to charge interest on a loan between one another. They can make a profit off a loan to a foreigner or to another nation, but for Israelites, any loan they give needs to be paid back in full, but not at interest. Okay. And so once again, we see this protection from exploitation Um, And then it's rooted once again in verse uh, 37 and 38 in the character of God. You shall not lend him your money at interest nor give him your food for profit, okay, at cost. Don't benefit from his tragedy. Verse 38, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Nobody in Israel can say that they pulled themselves up by their own bootstraps. And so anyone who's dealing with poverty is not the deserving poor right? Anyone dealing with poverty hasn't been working hard enough. That's a non-issue here. Um, and at the same time, like we saw with the strangers and sojourners, they remember they were not to reap the corners of their fields. It's not a handout. It's an opportunity for them to work and get the food that they need. And so they leave enough in the fields for the poor to work. And in the same way here, you should freely and willingly give a loan without interest to those in need that make up your, your brethren. Verse 39, if your brother becomes poor besides you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired servant and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Okay, so if it gets so bad that he, the only way he can pay his debts, the only way he can survive is to sell himself. Okay. Even there, the stat, uh, status is not slave. It's not property. It's not chattel right? At best, it says he's to be a hired servant here and only for the duration till the year of Jubilee. Verse 41, then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers, for they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. Once again, he roots it in their identity. He says they will not be your servants permanently because you're my servants permanently, and so are they. Verse 43, you shall not rule over them ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. Now, here's just a principle of life. When there's labor, the way we put it on our own shoulders and the way we put it on someone else's shoulders, is not always equal, okay? And so one of the advantages of slavery uh, as an institution is that you can work people harder than a free person, okay? And so there's a warning here there's a reminder that just because they have sold themselves into this place of servitude that you can't treat them ruthlessly that you can't take advantage of them that you should expect a normal day's wage or a normal day's labor just as you would give and not treat them ruthlessly Instead, it says, you shall fear your God, verse 44, as for your male and female slaves who you may have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. And so as we've seen in the book of Exodus and Leviticus, there was a concept of slavery. It's still not helpful for us to think of like 18th century African slave trade slavery. It's relatively different than that, but it's not the same status as what was allowed in Israel. They made a different standard here for those outside. Verse 46, you may bequeath them to your sons after you inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly. Now, there's one last piece of this seven-year cycle in the year of Jubilee, and that's in verse 47. If a stranger or sojourner with you becomes rich, and your brother besides him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner with you uh, or to a member of the stranger's clan, then after he is sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him, or his uncle or his cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may, may redeem him, or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. And so basically this is saying that the law also applies to anyone living in the land of Israel, whether they're Jewish or not, whether they're a convert or not. This is a law of the land, and they're to hold everybody in it to this standard. And so this protects from the land of Israel no longer belonging to the people of Israel, right? And so if a wealthy uh, you know, tycoon comes in and sets up shop and slowly buys out land, they, there's no exception there. The land is to follow this same cycle of jubilee Uh, Verse 50, he shall calculate with his buyer from the year when he sold himself until the year of jubilee and the price of his sale shall vary with the number of years. The time that was his own shall be rated as the time of a hired servant. If there are still many years left, he shall pay proportionately for the redemption some of his sale price. If there remains but a few years until the year of jubilee, he shall calculate and pay for his redemption in proportion to his years of service. He shall treat him as a servant hired year by year. He shall not rule rule ruthlessly over him in your sight. And if he is not redeemed by these means, then he and his children with him shall be released in the year of Jubilee. For it is to me that the people of Israel are servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so notice earlier we were talking about the land being restored in the year of Jubilee. Now we see freedom for those who indenture servitude themselves, who sell themselves, uh, to take care of their debts. And so imagine what this would be like. Every 50th year, all debts are canceled, and all losses are regained. My wife and I have five children, and financially, we've done every option available. We paid for one or two of them. Uh, we recently have been on Apple Health, and so the last one was just completely covered Uh, There was one occasion, though, with my second or third child uh, where we got the bills, and we weren't currently uh, with good insurance, and we weren't really sure what to do about it. Uh, And so I called the hospital and asked if they had any program um, to, uh, to make payments, and they asked me a few questions, and they said, actually, we have a debt forgiveness program, and you qualify, and they wiped the entire thing, and that was it. I never paid a single bill, completely unexpectedly. I imagine that you can feel that. I imagine that you can imagine what that feels like. Take the debt that you have, your mortgage. Take take these huge debts and imagine what it would be like if somebody just called you up and said, it's taken care of, it's gone. Think of the greatest regrets you have, the bad risk choices you've made, the places where you screwed up and lost it all. I don't think that's really rare in this economy my parents can't be the only ones who who invested their entire nest egg into a house right before the bottom fell out of the market it was a month after my parents bought the house that my dad had to take out higher uh, insurance because he was now underwater on his mortgage and when he lost his job a year later he had to sell under price and they lost everything and had to start from scratch i know many of us relate to that israel had a system in place so that none of those things were permanent now, notice here, it doesn't, it doesn't qualify how you became poor, how you got yourself into this. The Bible recognizes categorically three primary causes of poverty, okay? One is irresponsibility, right? You are called to be, read the book of Proverbs, responsible, and so laziness and drunkenness and these types of things can lead to poverty, but it also clearly recognizes uh, calamity, Right? I mean, we've got these hurricanes ripping up the East Coast right now. Um, that's not necessarily a poor choice, although all of us are thinking, man, I'm so glad I don't live in Florida, right? And to be honest, there are people who, who just got hit by the hurricane in Texas, who 12 years ago got hit by Katrina and still don't have flood insurance. So there's, there's, there's an entanglement here, but there is such a thing as just an unforeseen disaster, an act of God. There is these realities, and they can wipe out your finances, Your health can go sideways and the medical bills can just, you know, you can collapse under the weight. And we see that playing out in scripture. We see Job go from being rich and well-respected to nothing in a moment's time. It also recognizes systemic poverty, injustice, places where people are made poor by mistreatment and abuse. And the truth is, in any given situation, you'll probably find more than one element. We can't usually reduce our status down to just I made a bad decision or somebody mistreated me or this thing happened that I didn't foresee coming. Usually there's a mixture. In fact, there's a falling down the stairs reality to poverty, right? That, that um, when your health goes, suddenly you start missing payments, right? There's, there's this compound. And like I said, we have entire industries devoted to feeding on the disadvantage of the poor. And so they dig the hole deeper Um, through injustice. But whatever the reason is, it was built into Israel that that was not to be permanent. And think of this, because it happens every 50 years, that means that your kids have a chance to not start there. Right? Because when we talk about systemic poverty, that's what we recognize, is that not everybody gets equal opportunity. That where you're born and the schools that are available to you are all built into how your parents and that generation did before you. With Israel, there's a regular resetting of the clock. Now, can that be just grafted into the modern world? I have no idea. Politics, economics, capitalism are all tremendously complex ideas. But what we need to notice tonight is that God cares about these things that the God who stands behind this is the same God we serve today, and he doesn't ignore or neglect the reality of poverty. In Deuteronomy, God makes a promise that there shall be no poor among you if you obey me. And when you read about the church in the book of Acts, you find them finding that same language manifest in their own experience as a church. Luke picks it up intentionally and paraphrases that verse to talk about this reality of this brand new church in Jerusalem where everybody's needs are being taken care of and those who have are giving to those who have not and the scales are being balanced. He sees the correlation between those things and we should as well. We should care about these things, we should seek these things, we shouldn't operate in our business with, businesses without the fear of God um, and recognizing the fact that wherever we are cannot be separated from the good opportunities that God has given us, from the undeserved traits that we were born with, from the fact that you were born here instead of there, none of which we have control over and so it should make us sensitive to the needs of the poor. And so this year of Jubilee, interestingly enough, like I said, we only see a few places where maybe this was fulfilled in Israel's history. But even if it wasn't, that doesn't remove it of its value. As we've seen over and over again, God is creating in Israel an object lesson. He's teaching them something about himself and about his plan of salvation. So it's no surprise that when we get to the book of Isaiah and he talks about what God is going to do and I want you to remember that Isaiah is talking to people who have lost the land talking to people who as we'll see in the next chapter have experienced the full extent of the curses and consequences of their disobedience and have been exiled out of the land. Israel speak or Isaiah speaking to that crowd speaks of a time when there will be a coming jubilee a coming liberty And it's that passage in Isaiah that Luke tells us Jesus turns to in his hometown synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. Listen to this. So, here in Luke chapter 4, it tells us that as was his custom, Jesus goes to the synagogue. And the synagogues didn't have a pastor like our churches do today all of the adult males in the synagogue would teach on rotation. And apparently, this week, it's Jesus' turn. Now, a second thing you should understand is that Israel, and to this day, Jewish synagogues still generally function uh, on a liturgical year, which means the readings are pre-assigned. And so what what Jesus is reading here is not a passage he selected for himself. It's this week's reading. And this is what... um, this is what Luke tells us. Luke fourteen four verse 16, he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. And this is what he reads. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of the sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So do you see the imagery here? He's talking about the year of Jubilee. Isaiah takes it and he says, one is coming who the spirit will be upon to proclaim liberty, to good news to the poor, to set the captives free. In fact, the word here used for liberty is the same one from our passage in Leviticus. Leviticus. Um, And so look at what Jesus says in verse 20. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so he says, today is the year of Jubilee. This is the blowing of the trumpet. Notice the two things uh, that the day of Jubilee focuses on. Debts and slavery. Slavery. It's freedom from captivity, it's liberty, and it's the cancelling of debts. No surprise, those are two primary metaphors the New Testament uses for the work of Jesus. But not just from economic slavery and economic debts, but a deeper internal reality. The day of Jubilee, as Isaiah sees it and as Jesus fulfills it, is more than merely economics. It goes right down to the heart level of a deeper slavery and a deeper debt of this condition internally. And so when we read Leviticus through this lens, we discover that God was painting another picture of what he was going to do. I think many of us have found ourselves at one point or another deeper in debt than we would like to be and have had to dig ourselves out of that hole. Maybe through reading the book of Leviticus or Exodus or just exposure to the scriptures as well, you found the same ability in your life morally. For me, when I became a Christian, it was built on the back of despair. The great proclamation I made of my life was, I can't do this. In fact, I remember specifically laying on my floor in my living room and praying this, God, this is the mess I've made of my life. I know you can do better. For me, salvation wasn't so much receiving the good news because I'd known it since I was a child. It was surrendering to Jesus as Lord. But I saw in in this reality that basically I had taken a shovel and just dug and dug and dug and dug and dug and and there was no way I was going to get out of that hole. What Jesus proclaims here in this synagogue at the beginning of his ministry is there is freedom available. There's the possibility of liberty and debts being canceled and everything being set right again. That is how best to understand Jesus' ministry today this has been fulfilled in your hearing he said to his friends and family in Nazareth so back to Leviticus now we get to chapter 26 and chapter 26 simple summary version says two things if you obey here will be the blessings if you disobey here will be the curses and then it adds when you inevitably do disobey and experience the full set of curses here's how things will be set right through confession If you were to read the book of Deuteronomy, you'd find the exact same pattern. Deuteronomy means deuteronomos, second law. And so as the law is repeated by Moses for the people of Israel before they enter into the land, it also ends, as Leviticus does, with the possibility of blessings or cursings. Maybe you're familiar with the um, uh, the call that Moses makes at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, where he says there's two choices before you, life or death. Right? That's built on the back of these blessings and these curses. Okay? Now, before we read them, it's worth keeping in mind a couple of things. One, we are talking about Israel as a corporate identity, as a nation. And so this isn't talking about individual consequence. If you don't believe me, just read David's reports in the Psalms. Okay? This is not a guarantee that every wicked man will experience the full roster of curses here. It's that as a nation, if they turn from the Lord in disobedience, this will be the consequence. So it's corporate. The second thing to keep in mind um, is that this is unique to the nation of Israel. Their blessings are physical blessings and therefore are lost with obedience and curses. It's built around a land and an inheritance. But when we read, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, "'Blessed be the God and Father who has given us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus,' We're talking categorically about something different. Not the nation of Israel, but the multinational reality that is the church. Not Israel that was given a physical land through promise, but us who was given a spiritual inheritance in Jesus Christ. There's a nuance of difference here. Now at the same time, it's worth recognizing that we serve the same God and so there's still something to be said for consequence. But here's the thing you can't do with this list. You can't look at your life and go, my life is so tremendously blessed, it's obvious that I'm doing everything right, okay? In fact, that's not even true of Israel, and it's one of the great complaints that the book of Job makes, makes known, is that there's not always a direct color- correlation between righteousness and abundance, right? That there is such thing as the righteous poor and the wicked rich. That one's easier to believe, Um. And so we have to keep in mind here that it's this broad picture specifically for the nation of Israel, but there's still a principle for us. Let's look at it. Chapter 26, verse 1. You shall not make idols for yourself or erect an image or a pillar, and you shall not set up a figured stone in your land and bow down to it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord. What is that? It's basically a summary of the book of Leviticus. It's looking back and it's saying there's right worship and wrong worship. There's a right God to worship and a wrong God to worship. And then there's a recognition of the Sabbaths and the sanctuary. It's referring back and it's basically calling them to keep what has been written. In fact, notice what it says in verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then, do you see the if then there? If you do this, then I will give you rains in their season and the land shall yield its increase and the trees of the field uh, shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the grape harvest and the grape harvest shall last to the time of the sowing and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. So the first thing it says is that the crops will grow abundantly. Earlier we saw in the Sabbath year taking off that uh, unlike Israel's neighbors, they aren't trying to manipulate God, okay? It's not rituals and sacrifices that convinces God to give them a bumper crop, it's obedience if they follow him, okay? Uh, He continues here. Uh, And he says, verse six, I will give you peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I'll remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. Okay, so there will be no war. You shall chase your enemies and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred and a hundred of you shall chase 10,000 and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. And so victory in battle is promised. Verse nine, I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and confirm my covenant with you. And so here it's talking about fruitfulness of the womb. It's talking about many children being born. Genesis begins with be fruitful and multiply, and then God says to Abraham, I will make you fruitful, and I will multiply you. And here we see that that's bound up in the covenant, that if they obey, um, they will have many healthy children. It continues in verse 10, you shall eat the old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you and my soul shall not abhor you and I will walk among you and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt uh, that you should not be their slaves and I've broken the bars of your yoke and have made you walk erect. And so these are the blessings for obedience and once again it roots it in the identity of God and what he's done. I'm the one who set you free. And so he calls them to obedience, but verse 14, if you will not listen to me and you will not do all these commandments, if you spurn my statutes and if your soul abhors my rules so that you do not do all my commandments but break my covenant, then I will do this to you. I will visit you with panic and with a wasting disease and a fever that consumes the eyes and makes the heartache and you shall sow your seed in vain and your enemies shall eat it. I will set my face against you, and you shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. So for the most part, it's the opposite of what we've been reading, Um, but notice here when it says, you will flee though none pursue you, that's talking about paranoia. That's getting down to the psychological level, that they will be filled with fear. Uh, Verse 18, and in spite of this, if in spite of this you will not listen to me, then I will discipline you again sevenfold for your sins. So I want you to notice here that the curses aren't permanent judgments. They're labeled here as discipline to get their attention. Okay? What the curses are is effectively the removal of the blessings. And it's like a warning system that God has given Israel that everything is not as it should be. In fact, when this system finally plays out in Israel's history, it's almost 200 years of God sending prophets and warning Israel to turn around, repent, and come back before they finally get to the final threshold of these curses. But he says here that if they don't, he's going to do it sevenfold, which is just a maximizing of it. But the goal is still that they would turn around, not to destroy them, but to lead them to repentance uh, verse 19, And I will break the pride of your power. I will make the heavens like iron and your earth like bronze. In other words, no rain will fall. The soil will be hard. Verse 20, And your strength shall be spent in vain for your land shall not yield its increase. The trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. Notice here that God doesn't see this as, uh, as what he's going to do in Israel is above and beyond their potential. And he's just going to take away that extra increase. If they don't walk with God, the land is worthless to them, and they can work and toil as hard as they want, and it won't be productive. Verse 21, then if you walk contrary to me and will not listen to me, I will continue striking you sevenfold for your sins. So there's a progression here. Verse 22, And I will let loose the wild beast against you, which shall bereave you of your children and destroy your livestock and make you few in numbers, so that your road shall be deserted. And if by this discipline you are not turned to me, but walk contrary to me, then I also will walk contrary to you. And I myself will strike you sevenfold for your sins. Remember the final way the blessing was stated in the last chapter or in the last section was that I will walk among you. But that can also be a curse instead of a blessing. It's am I walking with you or against you? And here he says that that would be the case. And he continues, verse 25, I will bring a sword upon you that shall execute vengeance for the covenant. And if you gather within your cities, I will send pestilence among you, and you shall be delivered into the hand of your enemy. When I break your supply of bread, ten women shall bake your bread in a single oven, and shall dole out your bread again by weight, and you shall eat and not be satisfied. But if in spite of this you will not listen to me, but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you in fury, and I myself will discipline you sevenfold for your sins. You shall eat the flesh of your sons, and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. Meaning that uh, the agriculture will be so bad, the famine will be so bad, they'll, they'll consider cannibalism and consuming their own young Uh, Verse 30, I will destroy your high places and cut down your incense altars and cast your dead bodies upon the dead bodies of your idols and my soul will abhor you. That actually gives us insight into the problem here. Why is Israel being so stubborn and so hard-hearted? Because they still think their false gods can deliver them, right? And he says, no, I'm going to prove to you that that's not the case. Do you remember when Elijah stands against the 400 prophets of Baal and they do everything they can, you know, in a religious fervor, whipping themselves up and cutting themselves and crying out and Baal does nothing. And there's been years and years without rain. And then not only does Elijah just create a simple uh, altar and it's consumed in fire, but then he prays and the rain comes, right? This is all to remind Israel of who their God really is and who is not their God. As Elijah says, if Baal is God, serve him. But if, if Jehovah is God, then serve him, right? It's a wake-up call. It's a reminder. We see the same thing here. Verse 31, I will lay your cities waste and I will make your sanctuaries desolate and I will uh, not smell your pleasing aromas and I myself will devastate the land so that the enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it and I will scatter you among the nations and I will unsheathe the sword after you and your land shall be a desolation and your cities shall be a waste. And so he says the final threshold here, I'll just remove you from the land. Verse 34, then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate while you are in your enemy's land. Then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. And as for those of you who are left, I will send faintness into their hearts in the lands of their enemies. The sound of a driven leaf shall put them to flight and they shall flee as one flees from the sword. I can't imagine the sound of a driven leaf but it can't be that much stronger than a non-driven leaf, right? A, a leaf that's just falling. Um, but, but he's so devoted that even when they're out of the land, he doesn't give up on getting their attention, Verse 37, they shall stumble over one another as if to escape a sword though none pursues and you shall have no power to stand before your enemies and you shall perish among the nations and the land of your enemies shall eat you up and those of you who are left shall rot away into your enemies' lands because of their iniquity and also because of the iniquities of their fathers. They shall not rot away like them. Or sorry, they shall rot away like them. Now, the curse section is twice the length of the blessing section. You'll see the same thing in Deuteronomy, but I want you to understand why that is. It's because the curses are progressive, right? It's easy to see the seriousness of disobedience here, but you also need to see at the same time the tremendous patience of God. God patiently doesn't give them everything they deserve, but holds off and gives a little bit more, and even here, he says, if it comes to the point that you're driven out of the land and scattered among the nations, notice what it says in verse 40, but if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they committed against me and also in walking contrary to me so that I walk contrary to them and brought them into the land of their enemies, if then their uncircumcised heart is humbled and they make amends for their iniquity, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob. I will remember my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham and I will remember the land. This is really profound. At the full depth of their disobedience, experiencing all of the consequence, it's not too late. God is so committed to the covenant and do what he's promised that even here, all they need to do is confess all they need to, to do is own up to the treachery that they've committed against the Lord and he will set things right. Notice how he, uh, how he labels the problem here. He says that their hearts are uncircumcised, right? And so it, they don't even bear the marks of the covenant anymore. It's like God has set them apart to be Israel and they've just reversed the circumcision in their own hearts. Even if it gets to that point, all they have to do is confess Verse 33, but the land shall be abandoned by them and enjoy its Sabbaths while it lies desolate without them and they shall make amends for their iniquity because they spurned my rules and their soul abhorred my statutes. Yet for all that when they're in the land of their enemies, I will not spurn them. Neither will I abhor them so as to destroy them utterly and break my covenant with them for I am the Lord their God. And so he says, even if it gets to the worst, I will be faithful to the covenant. The blessings of Israel, the land of Israel, that is a covenant with two parts. If you obey, then I will bless. But the promise that he gave Abraham for an abundance of descendants, for the sending of a Messiah, that's a one-sided covenant. And God is devoted to that despite the faithlessness of his people. That's why in the New Testament it says, even when we are faithless, he remains faithful. He's devoted to the cause. He's devoted to them. So he says here in verse 45, But I will for their sake remember the covenant with their forefathers, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I might be their God. I am the Lord. And unfortunately, this passage is prophetic. This is exactly how it plays out in Israel's history. And so um, under the rule of the Assyrians and the Babylonians, Israel split into two kingdoms, the northern and the southern, are completely scattered And spend at least 70 years away from the land until the same God, using the decree of Cyrus, a Persian king, brings them back into the land just as he promised. When you read the book of Daniel and it says that he was confessing the sins of his people, this is what he's thinking of. When you read Jeremiah and it says that he was confessing the sins of his people, this is what Jeremiah was thinking of. Verse 46, these are the statutes and rules and the laws that the Lord made between himself and the people of Israel through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now we get to the final chapter, chapter 27, and it's an odd one. It seems out of place. You would expect the book to end with chapter 26. Here is the law I've given you, here are the consequences, even if you're cursed to the full degree, just confess and everything will be made right, the end. That's, we expect the credits to roll. Chapter 27 focuses on vows and not just the making of vows, but specifically the keeping of them. So some have looked at this and gone, well, maybe it's an appendix added later, like, oh, you know, we should have talked about this, let's just throw it on the end. But I actually think there's a good reason why this closes out the book. Okay? Here's why I think this makes sense. Because when you read the book of Leviticus, and I'd encourage you once again to take a deep breath and read through it all in one sitting, you encounter the reality of who God is and all of his holiness. And some of that holiness is a consuming fire and it's terrifying. You feel the danger and the difficulty of dwelling with a holy God when we are a sinful people. And then other times, it's glorious. You see that built into the law of Israel is this principle of you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You see the highlight of the year of jubilee as it was planned. You see that what God has for people is prosperity and peace. And so it's natural to me that this book would end with going, now how are you going to respond to this God? The natural thing to do is if you understand the God of Leviticus, to make a vow, to want to worship him. Remember that a vow is voluntary in nature. It's just something that you desire to do, but you're also making a promise to the living God. And so before we look at it, listen to how the author of Ecclesiastes talks about vows. Ecclesiastes is a book of, widow, of uh, wisdom, wisdom literature. It's not really a type of literature that we have today. I'm having to think and talk at the same time. Um... Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Here in chapter 5, he gives us his principles of responding to God. This is what he says. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools for they do not know what they are doing. What does he mean the sacrifice of fools? That's a sacrifice that's swiftly stated and offered and then not kept. And he continues in verse two, be not rash with your mouth nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God for God's in heaven and you're on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, few, For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many words. Responding to God by just talking a lot is not necessarily wisdom. He says that we should be um, careful when we speak to God. And specifically, he's talking about vows. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Now, in one sense, I think that seems totally obvious, that instead of making a promise and then breaking it, don't make a promise at all. But the truth is, we can easily fool ourselves in personal relationships or in our worship of the Lord of feeling like we get credit for making the offer. And then we go, well, I wasn't actually able to keep it, but God knows my heart, or something like that, okay? There's a flippancy of that that we have to be really careful about. Something's just swirling around in my brain. Let me see if I can pluck it out. In Psalm 15, it talks about who will ascend the mountain of the Lord. And one of the things that's on the list of the character of the one who can ascend the mountain of the Lord is he keeps his promise even to his own harm. Now, in the New Testament, we see vows happening on occasion. Paul, for example, takes a vow and keeps it, and we see him giving his offerings. Um, Very likely, it was a Nazarite vow. We see him paying for other Jews taking a vow. We see these things. But Jesus takes this, and he changes it, and he basically just says, in general, we should be people of our word, that our yes should be yes, and our no should be no. But the preacher here in Ecclesiastes just says, look, don't speak what you don't mean. A lot of times we're just overwhelmed with emotion and so our mouth just runs and then we come back and we go, hey, you know, I was just crazy talking. I mean, that's totally how I feel. It's how I felt at the time, but there's no way I can, we need to be careful of that. And so he says in verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. And so there's, there's a danger in making vows lightheartedly. And that's really where chapter 27 in Leviticus focuses. It has to do with what happens after you've made a vow. Verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, if anyone makes a special vow to the Lord involving the valuation of persons, then the valuation of a male from 20 years old up to 60 years old shall be 50 shekels of silver according to the shekels of the sanctuary. If the person is a female, the valuation shall be 30 shekels. Now, pause. The first vow here is is offering a person. Now, the firstborn of Israel are already given to the Lord. And it's required that they be redeemed. Uh, you know, so you can't, no human sacrifice, but the son that opens the womb is to, re, be, to be redeemed back because he already belongs to God. But if you desire to offer another child to God and you desire to redeem them, here it gives kind of a price list for that reality. You may remember that Hannah, who prays for a son and has given Samuel, makes this vow. She says, if you give me a son, I will give him back to you. And so Samuel is devoted to serving in the temple, in the tabernacle, um, because of this vow. As it goes through here, it gives a valuation, and it does it in four categories. Okay? People over 60, people from 20 to 60, people from, I believe, 6 to 20, and then people 5 and below. The second thing you'll notice as we read this is that in every category, the man is valued more than the woman. But you also need to recognize that between 20 and 60 is the highest valuation for men and women. In fact, the valuation for women in the normal adult category is higher than any man outside of that category. In fact, it's worth keeping in mind um, that this valuation isn't a valuation of, of people in and of themselves, but of the work that they bring to the table. Okay? Which is why the elderly, even though they're to be highly regarded in Israel, get less in their valuation than somebody in the prime of life, okay? It's about a day's labor, and so it's priced in that way. And so verse 5, if a person from 5 years old up to 20 years old, the valuation shall male be 20 shekels, for a female 10 shekels. Uh, If a person is from a month old up to 5 years old, the valuation shall be for a male of 5 shekels of silver, and for a female, the valuation shall be 3 shekels of silver, and if a person is 60 years old or over, then the valuation for a male should be 15 shekels and for a female, 10 shekels. Okay, now, side note, this is also a, a relatively large amount of money, okay? This is where the seriousness comes in. If you're going to make a vow and offer a person and then buy them out of that, if you're going to do this voluntarily, um, the valuation is pretty high. Most scholars believe that a shekel is about a month's wages, Okay. And so we're talking about anywhere from at least three months wages at the smallest to four years worth of wages at the largest, okay? So there's a relatively high value on here. And so it adds here, verse 8, if someone is too poor to pay the valuation, then he shall be made to stand before the priest, and the priest shall value him, and the priest shall value him according to what the vower can afford. So there's a sliding scale here. Just because you can't do this doesn't mean that you can't make a similar vow as a poor person, but then it's left up to the priest's discretion based on their level of income um, to handle. Verse nine, if the vow is an animal, so first we saw people, now animals, that may be offered as an offering to the Lord, all of it that he gives to the Lord is holy. He shall not exchange it or make a substitute for it, good for bad or bad for good. So remember, most of the time vows are made when you're asking something of the Lord, like Hannah did. If you give me a son, then I will, right? That's a vow. So here, the idea is, okay, God, if you, if you answer this prayer, I'll give you this sheep. And what it says here is, once the vow is needing to be returned, don't change sheep. Good for bad or bad for good. Don't go, you know, I've got this other sheep. He's a little bit smaller. I'd like him a little bit less. He's God's sheep now, right? That's the flippancy that I'm talking about. Like, this is all interchangeable. Um, verse 13, but if he wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to the valuation, So you've promised a sheep, and now you're not going to give the sheep? Then you need to buy it back, not just what it's worth, but 20% on top of that, okay? Verse 14, when a man dedicates his house as a holy gift to the Lord, the priest shall value it as either good or bad, and the priest values it so it shall stand. And if the donor wishes to redeem the house, he shall add a fifth value to the valuation price, and it shall be his. And so here, if you vow to donate a piece of property or a home, and then you decide, you know what, I'd actually like to have it back. You have, to in, you have to add 20% to the original valuation given by the priest. Verse 16, if a man dedicates to the Lord part of the land that's in his possession, the valuation shall be in proportion to its seed. Remember, the land here has to do with farming. And so it, in proportion to its seed means its yield, how many crops it produces, okay? So not the size, but how much it produces. A homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. If he dedicates his field from the year of Jubilee, the valuation shall stand. But if he dedicates his field after Jubilee, then the priest shall calculate the price according to the years that remain under the year of Jubilee, and a deduction shall be made from the valuation. Just like all other interchange of land, if they give it to the priest, it's only for a 50-year period, and if they buy it back at a certain part along the way, the price is adjusted. Verse 19, and if he who dedicates the field wishes to redeem it, he shall add a fifth to its valuation price. It shall remain his. But if he does not wish to redeem the field, or if he sold the field to another man, it shall not be redeemed more. Okay? But the field, when it's released in the Jubilee, shall be a holy gift to the Lord, like a field that's been devoted. The priest shall be in possession of it. If he dedicates to the Lord a field that he has bought, which is not a part of his possession, then the priest shall calculate the amount of the valuation up to the year of jubilee, and the man shall give the valuation on the day as a holy gift to the Lord. In the year of jubilee, the field shall return to him from whom it was bought. Okay? And so if you buy out somebody else's property and then give it as a gift to the Lord, you can't leave that guy hanging on his inheritance. And so you're really just selling it for the time of the land. And so it reverts back to the original owner, just as we would have expected in the year of jubilee verse twenty five every valuation shall be according to the shekel of the sanctuary, twenty garas shall make a shekel, so there's just a standard there verse twenty six but a firstborn of animals which has a firstborn, which as a firstborn belongs to the Lord, no man may dedicate whether ox or sheep, it's the lord's. Why it already belongs to him, okay no double giving, no you know. Twice benefit here. You know how I think of this whole chapter? Have you ever thought about how much time goes into crafting a coupon? Because if you don't craft it right, everybody takes advantage of it. Right? There's a spiritual couponer that this chapter imagines trying to get the best of both worlds. How can I come out ahead of the Lord and still get the credit for my righteousness and offering him something good? That's a terrible place to be. But nonetheless, that's what's going on here. Um, so, nobody can devote a firstborn because it already belongs to the Lord. Verse 27, if it's an unclean animal, he shall buy it back at the valuation and add a fifth to it. Or if it's not redeemed, it shall be sold at the valuation. Why would, why would God want an unclean animal? For work. Okay? So take a camel. Right? The priest can use a camel, they just can't offer it on the altar. Okay? They also can't eat it. Because it's unclean. Um... Verse 28, but no devoted thing that man devotes to the Lord or anything that he has, whether man or beast or of his inherited field, shall be sold or redeemed. Every devoted thing is most holy to the Lord. No one devoted who is to be devoted for destruction from mankind shall be ransomed. He shall surely be put to death. Now, this section is talking about a particular type of things devoted to the Lord. When we get into the book of Joshua, we'll see that all of the loot from the city of Jericho is devoted to the Lord. And that means all of it is to be destroyed, eradicated. Here in Leviticus, it's just preemptively reiterating that, that there's this particular category of devoted to the Lord that you can't buy back. And so if it belongs to the city of Jericho and you're like, you know what, that's a really nice robe. Can I just get in on that? And, you know, I'll just pay, you know, the the warehouse price and give that to God instead of the robe. That's not to happen. If it's devoted to the Lord, notice here that includes people that's talking about these inhabitants of the land now we haven't gotten to this reality yet of israel going into the land and wiping out the enemies of israel we're going to have to address that but god is very clear that that they are in this category that simply is a category of judgment okay god is going to use israel to bring judgment on these people and he's delayed for 400 years of history giving them an opportunity to repent Remember what God says about Sodom in the book of Genesis? Just ten righteous men, and then I wouldn't judge them. He tells Abraham in chapter 15, your people are going to go into Egypt and be slaves for a while. Why? Because the judgment of these people in this land is not yet full. He's patient with them, just like he is with Israel. And so when he comes, he comes patiently, and yes, he uses the people of Israel to bring about judgment, and that's what makes the judgment so serious. More on that when we get into Numbers, and especially Joshua. Verse 30, every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the trees, it's the Lord's, it's holy to the Lord. And so we haven't really talked about the tithe yet. We will in Deuteronomy, but a tenth of their income, of their crops, even a tenth of their land belonged to the Lord. Um, and that, that was required. And so there were givings beyond that. Most of the vows were givings beyond that, but the tithe was required. Verse 31, if a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. Okay? So maybe the tithe grain-wise, uh, is, it's just, oh, we don't have enough to feed our family. They can reach into their money and buy that back, but they have to add a fifth to it. The tithe still has to be paid. Okay? And so the same thing here. Um, verse 32 every tithe of herds and flocks every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy to the lord Uh, one shall not differentiate between good or bad neither shall he make a substitute for it and if he does substitute for it then both it and the substitute shall be holy it shall not be redeemed and so here it says if you try and pass one off on the priest and you get caught you make a substitution. The tenth lamb born is clearly the leader of the pack, and there was a runt on the ninth and on the eleventh, and you show up with the ninth, and a neighbor comes by and says, hey man, I was counting heads. That's not the tenth sheep. Not only do they have to still give the tenth sheep, but he takes the runt as well. Okay. If anything, this chapter enlightens us to the problem of human nature. Okay. Because Effectively, what it's pointing out here is that just because God is dwelling in the midst of Israel doesn't mean they're always going to act like it. Just because God is tremendously present doesn't mean that they're going to behave as if he's currently present. There's going to be a practical atheism, and we all struggle with this. There's a difference between knowing God exists and living like you know God exists. And so there's this recognition, and there just has to be consequence, And the consequence has to exist because if it didn't, people would try and take advantage of the living God, okay? Verse 34, these are the commandments that the Lord commanded Moses for the people of Israel on Mount Sinai. And so here we get the final reminder that's been repeated about the book of where this stuff comes from. It comes from God through the mediation of Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, there's one other reason why it mentions Mount Sinai here in the last verse of the book. And that's because as we open Numbers, they're going to break camp and move on, okay? And so Leviticus, all the way back to Exodus chapter 10, they've been sat around Mount Sinai. It's all been in one place, just camping there. And in the book of Numbers, they start to move on. And so this closure statement reminds us of where they are because they're about to break camp in the next book. So that is the book of Leviticus. Now, if you're keeping track, we have 63 books left and about 1,072 chapters. Uh, let's pray and then we'll end for the night. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness in the study and the things that we've learned along the way. I pray, Lord, that we uh, would get the message of the book of Leviticus be holy because I am holy. And we know that it looks different for us because the work that Jesus did was so profound and so deep, it trumps and transcends and fulfills everything that this pointed to. But you are still holy. And we are still called to holiness. So I pray that we would work that out in our lives and that our response would be a voluntary and willing surrendering, not just of our stuff, but of ourselves. I ask that you would help us to do this by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, have a good night.